Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 88. Today we spoke to Jay Akunzo, keynote speaker, author of Break the Wheel, and podcast and docu-series host and producer. Jay shares the opportunity that the pandemic gave him with more quality family time at home. Jay tells us what success means to him, opens up on creativity, curiosity, and practice. We discuss marketing showrunners, platform where Jay helps people find their voices and elevate their podcasts. We talk about Jay's work with large multinationals like Google and HubSpot and smaller and leaner companies. He educates us on the word telic and paratelic and what they mean. Find out more about Jay at www.jayaconzo.com. Thanks for joining us on our show. Jay, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much. Where are you joining us from? I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just over the river from Boston. Nice. Yeah. And, and what's the weather like for you today, Jay? The weather is now whatever the temperature is in my home office, right? Because that's basically where I live because it's also my bedroom. Uh, so <laughs> we're, all, we're all hunkering down over here still. I, uh, I believe it's probably like a really warm, slightly humid. I know it's very breezy out because I have a dog who demands attention outside twice to three times a day. That's it. Otherwise, it's like I'm out with a mask, I am in quickly, and I am just inside. And what's it been like for you, considering this has been a pretty crazy, turbulent, unprecedented, we hear all these sort of words, period. Yeah. What's it been like for you through it all? It's been, I'd say like people talk about the silver lining in hard times. I'd say I've had like a silver cloud or lots of silver clouds, which is I have a two-year-old daughter. And so when daycares closed here in the States, you know, immediately she came home. And now my wife and I, who also has a career of her own, have to figure out how do we take care of her and enrich her life and also balance our jobs, uh, which were becoming harder and harder. You know, I run my own business and a lot of it is based on public speaking at events. So obviously that was a big big hit and a big change. And so, you know, we basically split our schedule 50% watching her, 50% working, and you know, we do a morning afternoon shift and rotate. And so the silver clouds is the fact that I got to spend literal days of my life with my daughter that someday when I'm old and gray and she's long moved out of my home, I'll look back on really fondly and say, "Wow, I got so much time with her." But in the moment, of course, it's incredibly hard and, you know, you have good days and bad days like anything else. It's funny, I, I can exactly understand where you're coming from because it's been such a unique situation that I've spent more time with my three-year-old son in the last five months than I probably have in the last two years. And might never have that opportunity again because, you know, we're you know, similar to yourself, used to traveling, used to kind of working with, with the man beside me here. So having that opportunity to just be present, be still, go to the playground, not have to be on the phone all the time has probably been invaluable really 
Right. And it must be nice for you to have a working relationship together where you can turn to each other and rely on each other. And, you know, I know a lot of freelancers and entrepreneurs and even with my work, I'm building lots of different things and we're all kind of doing it largely solo or, you know, maybe with some support of freelancers or a team, but, but no real co-founder or partner. So, you know, when all of this stuff happens, it's, it's so valuable to have someone I must imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Jay, tell us a bit about your journey to where you've, where you are now with marketing showrunners. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I'm someone who likes to tinker. I like to create side projects and see where they go and how they make me feel, or maybe they build into something different or teach me something. And so right now I'm running a media and education company. Uh, You mentioned the name called Marketing Showrunners. And we teach the craft of making podcasts and video shows largely to marketers, but we have a big audience and different people are in that. Um, But our belief is that, you know, you shouldn't make a show. You should make a difference. It just so happens to be audio or video. So you have these wonderful vehicles called shows which happen to be great for depth and relationships in a world that honestly is trending a little shallow so many marketers and brands and entrepreneurs are trying to figure out how to support their missions and their brands through shows and so we teach that craft but we also want to do do so through that lens and you know we're not talking about the basics of which technology to select but more like how do you say something that matters? You know, the premise of your show. How do you craft a great experience in your episode so people stick around and maybe refer others your way? You know, the things that matter about crafting a show help you make a show that matters. So, but for me, you know, I, I identify as a writer first and foremost, and I just like making stuff. And since I was young, I wanted to tell stories and create in different flavors. And whether I was an English major in college or a sports journalism working for print publications, uh, then I got into marketing and here we are. Yeah, it's, you know, you're really a, a culmination of so many things. And what's, what's next or kind of what's, what's the, the next big thing for you over the next couple of years? I've been thinking a lot about, and maybe this has something to do with the pandemic and the social justice movements in the U.S. and elsewhere, but but this notion of business as a force for good, which is bubbling, but I think it needs to boil. It needs to become one giant coherent movement. Um, you know, it's not just business for me getting mine at all costs or aggressive growth or winner take all. You know, th- this classic story of business success is is damaging to teams and communities and, and the globe, quite frankly. So I think one of the things that I've been trying to do to help fix that is try and find a way to replace the typical success story in people's minds. Because if you have a different model for what success means, you can make a lot of positive progress in the world. And so, for example, I just put out a documentary series called Against the Grain. And uh, I created that in partnership with a software firm called Help Scout. And the whole idea is to find companies who want to use business for good, for the larger good, not nonprofits, but for-profit companies uh, doing business for good and then elevating those stories through the show. And we shot it before COVID. So it kind of reminds me looking at myself on camera of what it was like to hug strangers, uh, which was wonderful. But, but I think to answer your question, what's next for me is I want to do the same stuff I'm doing now, but imbue it with that idea. So, you know, it starts with the docu-series and also my business teaching others how to make meaningful series themselves. And that question is, how do I make sure that I'm building a company in line with my values? You know, so for example, how do I use our podcasting workshops to help amplify voices who didn't have access to all the opportunity I had? Or, you know, discounts for activists and nonprofits and free seats for science researchers and communicators and full-time undergrads, like that kind of thing. So again, I like what I'm doing now, but I want to have more of it tie to a clear purpose of why we're doing it. 
That's amazing. And and Jay, you obviously are someone that's had to pivot massively over the last couple of months like us. And maybe when you're used to delivering on site in that environment, you've now, you know, you're probably doing more online than ever. And the issue we have found, or I suppose the the area where we've had to adapt is to is to deliver content online. But with population kind of getting saturated with that, you know, with Zoom and so much content out there, how do you make the content that maybe you deliver or you kind of educate people as to how they deliver content to refreshing, different, and interesting or attractive to people? It's a really simple answer, which is I try to make things that light, light me up first and foremost. Um, I, I think creativity gets put on a pedestal a little too much, which is a weird thing for somebody who's trying to make a living on his creativity to say, right? Like I do, I, I love the big ideas that people talk about around creativity, um, but I don't think I don't think that's healthy for most people. I don't think it's healthy for me to think of creativity as big or innovative. I think of it as practice. So it's it's just the interplay between repetition and reinvention. So you do something, then you try to make it better the next time and just keep doing that forever. And so all that to say, I I think my approach, if I had to try and retroactively describe it for making my work refreshing and, and relevant and resonant is to make sure that it's based in my practice, like my body of work matters more than any one idea. So it's like every time I publish something, I'm trying to learn something more than share some final asset that I know is great or that I know will hit. Um, And framing it like that makes it more accessible to more people to create, which is in part some of the mission of my business. But I'm trying to take my own medicine and and kind of say to the world, hey, I, I wondered about this thing. Here's my stab at it. What do you think? And then update the next time and the next time and the next time based on what I hear or what I learned by creating. So kind of focusing on making things as the act of trying to understand instead of sharing with people what I already know to be true. And I I think if you approach the creative craft like that, more people assume that they can be creative now. And then also the job is far less daunting because it's not about, well, how do I do something completely refreshing for these people? It's just about, I'm here now. What's the next logical step? And I'm inviting other people along that journey. That's brilliant. I'd like to dive into a bit of your experience, both where you've worked before and who you're working with at the moment. You're in collaboration with a lot of big companies like Adobe, New York Times, Shopify. You've worked with Google and ESPN. They're all high-performing companies and organizations. Have you noticed any trends between the companies that make them so successful? That's a really interesting question. I feel like there's this word I discovered in probably 2012. Uh, I worked for a tiny startup and the company created gamified content. So things with like quizzes and little progress bars to show your status, you know, somewhat kind of lame games on the internet. Instead of reading about something, you would interact with it and take a quiz on it. Gamified content. So I was installed as the head of the content team because like you said, I, I, you know, it worked at these different tech companies, and they, they thought I knew some things. Uh, boy, were they wrong. <laughs> you hope they're not listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was leading this content team, so I was like, well, I better brush up on what game theory and game mechanics are. And I found this word that now that I know it, I see it everywhere. And the opposite of this word is what I think all those great companies have in common. So the word is telic, T-E-L-I-C. It means done to a definite end. In other words, a chore. 
So when work is telic, it incentivizes at-all-cost behaviors. You'd rather blink your eyes and have a clean floor than sweep your floor. You'd rather outsource it to somebody, find better technology. Can Is there sweeping automation software that I could purchase, please? Like there's all these behaviors that happen when something feels like the whole point of this process or this project is to get the end result. And I think the, the opposite is intrinsic. So when something's intrinsically motivating or paratelic, you become moment oriented. And when something's intrinsic, very healthy behaviors come out, namely two of them. You seek out that task more and you find ways to improve it. So for example, um, eating ice cream for me, very intrinsically motivating. Like I'm not trying to skip to the end and just hand somebody like a dirty bowl and be like, hey, I finished it. No, no, no. The point, the point is to eat the ice cream, right? The process is the point. So we find ways to improve that ice cream. We add more toppings. We find other flavors. Like we, we make things better and we seek it out more when we are intrinsically motivated to do the work. And I think these great companies are really, really great at turning work that could feel like a chore into something that feels intrinsically motivating for their teams and their leaders. You know, they're focused on the mission. They're focused on the process. You hear phrases like lifelong learning. It's always about being moment-oriented. And oh, by the way, the byproduct of all that is you get good end results, but the focus can never be the metrics. Where you see these companies go awry is when they start focusing on the metrics. They think the goal is the measurement. The goal is how we track our progress. No, 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 no. The goal is actually the progress towards the goal, right? The goal is make something better, make a difference. And these metrics are how we measure whether or not we're succeeding in achieving the real goal. So, so I think that's what they have in common. They take work that lots of people treat as telic, as chore-like, and they make it intrinsic. They make it about the process. And, and Jay, at the other end of the spectrum, if you're working with smaller businesses, SMEs, startups, young entrepreneurs, what do you enjoy the most about that process? And, and kind of what have you maybe learned from the previous group, ESPN, Google, and then that sheds light on working with those smaller groups? Right. So w- when you're smaller, almost all you have is the, the process, is the mission, is all the intrinsically, intrinsically motivating stuff. So, you know, my, my storytelling hero is the late, great Anthony Bourdain. And one of the things that always struck me was that, you know, he he did this interview for a blog once where he said, to create something for other people, there's something a bit monstrous about you. Like to expect that the audience will buy a book or stay past the commercial and appreciate what you're doing and your perspective on the world, that is not reasonable thinking. So I think it's, it's a great thing that when you start or you're small with your company, that you, you don't just focus on incremental gains or quarterly metrics or reporting to shareholders and maximizing value for them. The odds are so against you and so many things are so uncertain that you have to just get by on that unreasonable thinking. Um, you have to draw motivation from some kind of grander mission or vision. And I like to say that visionaries don't see the future. They see the present more clearly. So you see what's broken in the status quo. That makes you a visionary. And then maybe extending to the future, you think there's a better way that we can build. I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to build towards it. So visionaries don't have a vision of the future. They have a vision for the future. And then your work is to take a lot of swings at the forest between you and some kind of mountain peak in the distance to try and make progress. And then you invite others along and that's how you build community. So, you know, that's what I love about the early stage, the small, the scrappy, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but usually 
doing it right on those at those stages just means focusing irrationally so and doing the unreasonable thing, which is I want to get to that mountain peak. I want to make something better in this world. I think I see a better way. I don't know how to get there. I'm asking a lot of questions. I'm inviting you along. Let's go. And, and that idea lights me up. Jay, you're sort of acclaimed for helping people navigate their stories and give them voices. There must be a lot of people who make transition from working in big companies or working in a job that they may have done for their lifetime to starting something new or maybe hosting a new show. What advice could you give to them say this transition isn't as scary as it, as it seems at first and maybe what are the first few steps for them to consider? I wish somebody told me this earlier. I think it was a hard lesson to learn that I only learned from being unhappy in a lot of jobs in my 20s. Um, But in a career, when you make important choices to move or change jobs, whether you're staying at the same company or going to a different company or starting a company, I I think you have to recognize that there's a trade-off inherent to all those choices, which is you can have control or you can have certainty. These ideas are actually inversely proportionate to each other. So if you have a ton of control, you know, 100% control, you have very little certainty, probably 0% because you're just starting something from scratch. It's just you. You haven't started. 100% control. Nothing has been established, even your own internal processes. Total control, no certainty. And on the flip side, if you have total certainty, you're probably working for a massive organization that's thriving. You know what the promotion looks like. You know your paycheck's showing up. You have exact instructions for how to do your job, etc. So you have total certainty, no control. And I think when you recognize that those things are opposites, or at least inversely proportionate, a lot of things get easier. Because I think a lot of stress or unhappiness or even paralysis, like you don't make a decision, all of that comes, I think, from wanting both control and certainty together. So for example, when I worked at Google, I was really unhappy, not because there was something inherently wrong about the job or the business. Um, Many friends of mine love it and still do all these years later. They're still there. But I'm somebody who turns out values control over certainty. And I just didn't have that self-awareness back then. So I was really unhappy. And I also, it was really hard for me to leave because I was like, well, I want more control. I want to go to a startup, but the startup can't pay me as much. So, you know, I was trying to get certainty at a startup instead of just looking for what made me happy, which is control, because I lack that self-awareness. So like Google is great if you value certainty. The paycheck is going to show up. You have very little wiggle room or creativity left For the job, you know exactly what you need to do and how and when and how it's measured, but you have total certainty. Um, And if that makes you happy, great. There's nothing wrong with that. You just have to acknowledge it. And, you know, your job is to grab hold of a tiny piece of a big machine and turn that crank as it was designed to be turned. Um, So you're there for total certainty. And what I didn't realize at the time, which is why I was unhappy, is I value control. But even now, running my own business, I'm giving up control in favor of certainty. I'd like to trade off some of the control for more certainty in process or results. And so maybe now I have 90% control and 10% certainty. But that's okay. I'm willing to make that trade off. So again, whether it's one organization and you're moving within it or you're trying to leave it and go somewhere else or start something, if we just knew that these things were inversely proportionate, we could analyze our choices better. And I think it starts with self-awareness of what we value between the two or to what degree. And then we can objectively analyze a choice at hand and make it more confidently. And Jay, from having made that step, that leap away from Google, you know, you're thinking that was the place for you maybe for long term and you're a founder, you're setting up your own gig. What were the challenges, the anxieties 
with that? And then how did you overcome them to know that this is the place for me now? This is what I'm enjoying. This is what I want to be doing. I think honestly, it just came from trying a lot of stuff. And, and not always the stuff you see like listed on LinkedIn, for example. So I, I think at one point, I think when I turned 30, I wrote a blog post about all the side projects I launched in my 20s. And it was something like 33 or 35 projects. And, and look, most of them died on the vine. Like they didn't amount to anything. But um, blogs, newsletters, podcasts, uh, community meetups, things I was just tinkering on. And most of them amounted to nothing. But the thing is, publicly, they amounted to nothing. Like for me, everything I was doing taught me something about myself, taught me a skill, connected me to somebody that helped me. Um, so, you know, from the day job side, it looks different than the side project side. But I was thinking, you know, how do I, how do I describe them both together? I think from Google, I went to a small startup, moved from sales to marketing, content creation, content marketing, and I wasn't happy in different ways at that startup and happy in some ways. And then I went to a really large startup called HubSpot, which was Google all over again for me. I had no control. I was very unhappy. And then I went to a venture capital firm where I was their VP of brand. And they basically handed me this baby that they'd been building for five years. And once I earned their trust, they said, what do you do with our brand? And so I had a ton of autonomy and there's my control idea. And I was really happy. And then when I wanted to start my own thing, it was just because I couldn't dedicate enough hours in the mornings or at night to side projects of making podcasts and giving speeches. And I was like, I want to do that more. I love my day job. And now I'm not leaving something. I'm going towards something. You know, both of them have varying degrees of control. Both of them could make me happy, but it was just me moving towards something, which was being a solo creator and making shows for brands, making my own shows, giving speeches, writing my book. So you kind of couple that day job arc with all the side projects. And, you know, I think a lot of it is about embracing that there's only one project and that's your body of work. So it might sound like jobs start and stop or projects start and stop, but you're learning things, you're growing, you are present in every single thing you do. So there's just one thing. It's all this continuous you, your body of work. And if you embrace that your career is just a constant self-discovery process or a way to improve your skills, uh, self-awareness, etc., your career is just motion forward. Now you can stop looking for the job or the project or the mentor to, to sort of save you or vault you because it's just the body of work. Everything contributes to everything. There won't be the thing and that's okay. Um, and looking for the thing is a little bit dangerous because I don't think it exists. Excellent. In terms of where you're going and how you've done so far, what would be your measures of success as in where you've come from and how you think you're doing at the moment? So when the quarantine started, I found myself with more time to reflect um, than I had before. I didn't have more hours. I actually lost hours because now I have to uh, take care of my daughter because childcare was gone. And, um, but the hours that I had to work, I wasn't traveling anymore. I wasn't giving speeches. So I had this weird but kind of amazing chance to step back and just think about what actually values, what, what actual values do I have? What actually matters to me? And, you know, I could understand, did my work match that? And so for the first time ever, I actually took serious this cliche of writing out your why, your how, and your what. You know, the, the, the golden circles idea that was popularized by Simon Sinek. And in writing this stuff out, I actually think I finally figured out how to find clarity when the world was all over the place and my life was more in chaos. Um, 
and also understand my relationship to the work. And then I could figure out how do I actually measure that success and keep up with it. So, so here's my why. So I want to find and sh- I want to help people find and share their voices and make a difference through the created work. And, you know, right now I happen to think a show is the best way to find your voice because you're putting in the reps to share your voice because you go really deep and the relationship is great. The the intimacy of a show is powerful Um, and to make a difference because that depth and that relationship can rally people to a cause and build a community. So right now I happen to think a show helps me execute best on the why. So now how do I execute on it? Well, there's a bunch of bullets but they don't sound like projects. They sound like approaches to the projects, right? It's the how, it's not the what. So an an example of the how might be, I'd like to deconstruct great examples of the created work to make creativity more accessible for more people. Well, I could do that through a podcast, which we do. I have a podcast called Three Clips where we break down other podcasts. Uh, I could do that through a blog, which uh, our managing editor just launched a new blog series called Why Listeners Like It, where... You know, we talked to, for example, the podcast host from Adobe, and everybody gives a one example of what they think their show does uniquely well that listeners like. Then we create a little visual scorecard or scouting report about their show. So we can deconstruct the created work. That's a, a how to support my why. And the what is the podcast, is the blog, is the newsletter, and so forth. The what is going to change a lot. The how is going to change a little bit. And the why is going to change almost not at all because it's like this it's like this russian doll nesting situation um or yes like the golden circles from from simon senek and then how do i measure that i have to keep reminding myself that the goal is not numbers the numbers are how you track progress to the goal the goal is everything i just mentioned to you so if we do have numbers it's about momentum not totals so the rate at which people are subscribing not total subscribers or did referrals come our way from past students of our workshops as a sign that we had impact in our past workshops? Um, can we focus more on teaching and serving the mission? Because if we do that, the numbers will take care of themselves. And so the only real goal is make a difference. It's not a number. That's the real goal, make a difference. And the numbers are the byproduct of doing that. And Jay, with that kind of that, the golden circle nearly with the, the why, how, and the what, and obviously going into places and with people working through them and providing inspiration frameworks creativity innovation all all these kind of really important themes where do you draw energy to feed into your business so that those sort of key areas can come into that business for it so when you're working with companies and individuals you have that to call on does it all come from within or is there somewhere where you're kind of getting that energy and inspiration from yeah the thing that drains me of energy are the back-end business operational things, which I'm, I'm not alone as an entrepreneur saying that. You know, I like to make stuff and to see the reaction, honestly. It's my ego likes that, but also it lets me know I'm having an impact is to see people react. Um, but what I've gotten better at doing is turning the things that drain me into energy or drain me of my energy into things that give me energy. So right now I have this little mantra, which is simple systems and stories. So if I don't love the task, like financial forecasting or the surrounding marketing around a podcast episode, you know, I'd rather make the next episode. If I don't like what's happening or it's draining me of energy and I notice that, what is the simple system? Can I document the process? Can I come up with a better one? Because I can then hire for it, find somebody better at this task who does light up and draw energy from it, and or at least do it more efficiently and effectively for myself. 
And then I can get back to telling stories and keeping that system simple too. How do I tell more stories? Because that's what I want to be truly, truly great at. Um, so right now that mantra, simple systems and stories, is, is letting me take the stuff that at first blush is not my favorite stuff and turn it into things that I know are actually in some roundabout way allowing me to get back to the things I really want to be good at, the things that I, I draw energy from. So Jay, speaking about the measures of success and you getting that energy from the back end, what would be the main sort of keynote that you said that was a real success for me or our talk or a workshop that you felt that was one of the best I've done? I think it's when people come in and say that they were skeptical of something and then they leave realizing that it was worth their time. So there's a lot of shows about marketing and there's a lot of shows about podcasting. Uh, people seem to like three clips, which is our show. And, and that feels good because we put a lot of work in the development of it and, and how we structure it and plan it. Um, same with the workshop. I've had people say, I've heard your show. I've read your blog. I didn't think I actually needed this. A friend gave me their discount code. So I opted in and we had impact. So I think it's when the hard work of planning things pays off. Um, because the planning isn't just done in a notebook or digitally from scratch. The planning is we're going to spend significant time and resources publishing bits of this in our blog, in our newsletter, on our show, and then reflecting on it, seeing what sticks, you know, again, creating as an act of discovery to then try to bottle up the best and massage it a little bit and refine it into the culminating project. So for example, for the last year, we've been doing that with an eye towards creating a workshop for podcasters. Well, first we need the system. We need examples. So we better go write about all these ideas. We better come up with visual frameworks. We better find great examples and tell their stories. And then we have this backlog of content that can go into the workshop and we've tested it with the actual audience. And the best part of that all, the whole process, or maybe the secondary part of it is the people who have been interested the whole time are along for that journey. And then when you say, and by the way, now, now here's the book, now here's the workshop, now here's the new show on the back of all these ideas, they're waiting. So it's almost like it's better to open your restaurant for the first time with a line waiting around the corner than it is to throw open the doors and announce to the world for the first time that you're there. Um, maybe a poor analogy given COVID, but I deeply miss all my favorite restaurants. So that's where my mind went. <laughs> that's a good analogy, Jay. Jay, look, you know, obviously through, through this talk here, we've touched on many things. You're obviously renowned as a, as a keynote speaker, right? People in, invite you to sessions and you distill all your learnings and your lessons through the years. In the process of going up on stage, on site or even online, what are the ingredients for you that, that make that successful, that make that work, that make, give you the power to deliver the content and the message you're trying to outline? I, I really appreciate that. First of all, it's something I like doing, but it's also something I've worked really, really hard at. And uh, I had a really great mentor named Andrew Davis. Um, so Andrew is an author, former agency executive, who's now a speaker and performer and runs digital shows. And um, he's just, he's a dynamo. He's like the most energetic and to my money, one of the best speakers alive. And I was very fortunate to meet him before my speaking career began, before my first book. And he kind of took me under his wing and what he taught me was invaluable, which is it really is about repetition and rehearsal time. So I think some speakers have done something else and then 
get into speaking because it's a way to fund it. Like they wrote the best-selling book and now they have invitations to speak. So they're authors who happen to speak. What Drew taught me to do was assume the posture of a speaker. You are a speaker plus author, not an author who speaks. Um, And what that forces you to do is think about the performance and rehearse it gratuitously and constantly, uh, both tiny pieces and the whole thing alone in your office at full speed, at full volume. Um, record yourself, analyze it like an athlete looking at their game tape. Um, have different people sit in the audience for you as little double agents and look not at your performance because you can get that over video, but look at the audience. When do they light up? When do they seem bored? When are they writing down notes? So doing all these little things, I love, and maybe you can even hear it, I'm smiling ear to ear here because it's, it's the craft that really makes it work. So it, thank you for saying that about my speaking because it's just I just get lost in the process and it always feels really, really hard. But Drew taught me that, that that's all the work really is. And the moment you get up on stage is just this tiny little moment, this tip of the iceberg people see, but it's supported by so much else that went into you getting there. Your point leads on perfectly to your writing. You've wrote a great book, Break the Wheel. Do you want to tell us what the process was for as you said, becoming a speaker, but also then becoming the author. Sure. Yeah. I mean, very similar to all the stuff that led to my workshop. So I had a personal podcast just launched as a side project called Unthinkable. It's still live, but it's kind of dormant, at least while I figure out my other show, Three Clips. Um, But the idea of that show is to tell stories of people that questioned conventional thinking and did something that seemed unthinkable, seemed different or radical or crazy, But then when you talk to them every single time, they tell you why it was super logical to them. And I think that difference is the difference between what's best in general, the best practice, and best for them. And they would say things like, well, yes, in general, people do it this way, but here's what I noticed in my shoes, so I should do it that way instead. And, you know, there are real psychological barriers for thinking in the general terms. Um, We're trained in school, for example, Look for the right answer. Avoid the wrong answer. Well, most things in our work don't have a right answer, except if you look around the internet, thousands and thousands, if not millions of people are sharing their supposed right answers with you and professing to be the experts. And so what could you possibly do, right? So you go seeking your answer out there in some vague sense. Um, So my process was for two and a half years, I'm going to tell those stories, then reflect on all that stuff, find insights, and come up with a system. How do you make choices based on what works best for you instead of the best practice, which is what works best in general? And because I was saying question best practices, include your own variables, I couldn't then hand my readers a best practice, right? I can't, that's a hypocritical thing to do. So the system I came up with was six questions you can ask in order. However, more importantly, here are the types of questions to ask. Go create your own. Um, what I wanted to do was create more think for yourselfers and not do what most business books do, which is just hand you all the answers and try to say, just do it this way. Um, so two and a half years, stories, questions, insights, frameworks. And once I had all of that stuff from my show, I outlined the book and then I rounded out new research and stories to make it you know, book worthy. Jay, I'd like to ask about the fact that you have a couple of things ongoing and obviously you're the founder of, of many things that are successful, how do you strike the balance between pushing all those shiny objects that you are interested in and you have real purpose and drive behind, but you have a young family at home? 
how do you kind of how do you strike the balance so that it all works out? I uh, I'll let you know when I figure that out. I'm asking it selfishly because I want to know for myself, right? It's a real issue. I, I think too much about work. I work too much. Uh, I'm enamored with my work, and, and it chews into all parts of my life, and sometimes in a in a bad way. So, I just I draw so much meaning from it and worry about it so much. Um, but you know, I have a friend who texted me actually yesterday, and we were talking about all the problems he's facing. He's an accountant, and he works for a law firm, and and like twice a year we talk about his existential crises at work. And what I told him was like, hey, you know, I'm motivated by the idea that life is short, that I'm going to die someday. And when I realize that, it makes me focus on what matters in my career, which is doing work that matters. And so if I don't feel like I'm learning or, you know, back when I had a day job, didn't like working for a boss or at a company, leave, right? Make, make a change. Don't wait to make a change because you are going to die. And what he said was, you know, that same idea makes me think work doesn't matter that much. And so he, he wants the job that isn't too demanding so he can leave right at five, not think about it at night and invest everything in his work or in his life around work. And don't get me wrong. I want to be more present in those, those things too. Um, but what I told my friend was, that's great. Like you've figured out your own self-awareness. You know that about yourself and a lot of people don't, but now you have to be willing to make the trade-off that the day job might never be quite as fulfilling as you, as it could be. And you just kind of have to be okay with that or at least making small changes to improve that. Um, just like I'm making a trade-off that, for example, I will never pursue a hobby. I'm never going to get into woodworking because my hobbies have become my day jobs. Like podcasting used to be something I did just for fun. Writing, same thing. You know, like I'm now doing all this stuff for my day job and then all the rest of my time goes to family and friends. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Jay. In terms of your impact on speaking and also being an author, you also do a lot of reading, I'd imagine, and we're often interested in if you had to gift one book, if you have to give us or someone you know a book to give them a hand, what would be the book that you'd choose? There's a, there's a book that I, the, the one I gift the most often is a really practical reason why. So I teach the craft of making shows. It started with podcasts. I love podcasting. Um, I, I also make shows. So the book I recommend the most for people who are interested in this stuff is called Out on the Wire. Uh, it's by a woman named Jessica Abel. And it was written several years ago, but basically she embedded herself with the different teams behind some of the best podcasts in the world. So This American Life, Radio Lab, which is my favorite show, 99% Invisible, Snap Judgment, etc. And she followed them around, understood their process, and then wrote about it in terms of all the different things you can do moving through the process of making great podcasts. And she, she's a cartoonist. So she wrote it as this giant, it's not a graphic novel, but it's like a, it's a novel length cartoon. It's really wonderfully written. And so, you know, she appears in the margins as a narrator sometimes, then you're back into the strip with the team that she was with. It's great. It's out on the wire. So I give that the most, but if you're not interested in that stuff, I'd say um, I'll go right back to my storytelling hero, Anthony Bourdain, and suggest his first book, Kitchen Confidential. That, that showed me how to write with, with such command of your voice and such vivid descriptions and how to bring characters and, and even just like day-to-day mundane things to life. You know, again, in a really vivid, gripping way. Um, and obviously his approach to stories is something that I, I try to emulate, albeit I'm not great at it yet, uh, in, in the rest of my work. And we actually have both here 
in the office, coincidentally. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's great. Jay, look, you've been successful in so many different endeavors, podcast writing, public speaking, giving back a lot of value and a lot of education to a lot of people. And, and for us and for me personally, I'd say that's, that's the biggest thing. You know, you're sharing what you've learned with others. There's so much to be acknowledged for and commended for. This podcast is all based about high performance and what makes people at the top of the tree successful. So it's only fitting that we ask you, Jay, what does high performance mean to you? I think that we believe someone who is a high performer or successful is an expert and like they've reached some final step. But I actually think that we should stop acting like experts and start acting like investigators. I think investigators are higher performers by far. Um, you don't have all the answers, but instead you're endlessly curious. You always ask questions about what you think you know. And like I, when I say you're curious, you're well-roundedly curious, if, if that's a phrase. Like you don't just investigate this one narrow thing, which represents, say, your day job. It's not about just your core thing. If you're an athlete and you play basketball, it's not just about basketball and basketball drills. You know, you go and take yoga. You improve your mind. Um, you're, if you're in marketing, you also pursue a, a passion for cooking, but you're willing to learn from cooking and apply what you've learned to marketing. And it's this like cross-functional, cross-disciplinary learning style um, that I think makes people successful and also feeds more curiosity. It's like this beautiful, virtuous cycle. And... You know, when you just ask and pursue answers that Google can give you, you're very limited. But when you investigate and learn and grow quickly, it's like I'm investigating and learning. I'm inviting my audience, if I'd like to build an audience for my craft, to come with me as I investigate. I'm inclusive to whoever I want to serve. And, and I think like, you know, Bourdain had this tattoo that said, I am certain of nothing. And I think that's powerful stuff. That, that transforms your ability to learn and grow and teach and inspire. So I don't know what the answer here is, but I guess this is kind of a meta answer. I think we should stop trying to have the answer and just get better at asking open-ended questions and pursuing our curiosity. Stop acting like experts and start acting like investigators and let somebody else say that you're successful or creative or a high performer. Yeah, it's very much an ongoing process. Jay Akonzo, Myself, David Clancy, and Kiran here beside me would like to say thank you very much for giving us your time, your energy, and your, your thoughts today on, on our podcast. We've really enjoyed it. Really grateful. Wishing you all the best across the Atlantic. Stay fit, stay healthy, and hope everything comes full circle and the world turns back to what we want it to be sooner rather than later. Thank you so much. This was such a fun experience for me, and um, same to you, to both of you, and, and to your listeners. Thanks very much, Jay. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.